0: You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. Hey, I was remembering just this afternoon the first time I took a really good punch to the face. Um, I've, this, this face has taken a few punches over the years, as if you didn't know. And um, that's, what, that's what happens when you've got two brothers and no mum to tell you to settle down. And so we, um, we got to brawling a lot when I was a kid. But the thing that I was good at, um, not so much punching as um, just inciting people to punch me. Like the thing that I've been good at really from as long as I can remember is just using words to destroy people. That's, that's been my great gift. And, um, and it's been actually the greatest heartache that I've had since I became a Christian. The thing that God has really had to do some serious work to overcome in my life. And um, so I was always the sharp-tongued one, and my little brother wasn't. He's, he's, a, he's a practical guy. He's not a wordsmith. He's a builder, and, um, and he's a couple of years younger than me. Um, but even from an early age, he was bigger than me. And so here's how it went when we were kids. I would, I would, I would string together sentences that were designed to make him as angry as possible and then I would run as fast as possible when he finally cracked. And I remember the first time that I didn't get away, um, and it was the time that he first really connected well. Like, really... Have you guys been punched in the face before? It's a shocking thing. Like, you know, you see it in the movies, and it just seems like they can take 25 punches and not even have a bruise. But when you get punched really hard in the face, it's really shocking. Um... And dazing, and so I kind of remember that first time that he got me. There were plenty of times after that, but um, why am I telling you this? Um, Because this is like therapy for me, and it doesn't cost any money, and you guys can't leave. So what were we talking about? Exodus 7, that's right. This is why it came to mind, because it seems to me that Pharaoh is doing this with God, right? He has been, for a long time now, inciting God, inciting him inciting him with it, both with his words and his actions. So his actions in taking the, the Israelites captive, subjugating them, making them slaves, incites God's anger and his justice. God is a God of justice and he hates seeing injustice. So he's been doing that, but he's also started doing that with his words. Ever since Moses and Aaron turned up, he has been baiting God, he's been inciting him. He's been kind of talking the big talk that some of us are prone to do, um, and in the end, it catches up with us, all right? And it's about to catch up with Pharaoh. We're going to see Yahweh's first punch connect with Pharaoh's face tonight, all right? And we're going to see it uh, in two great acts of power that God is going to demonstrate um, in, 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 the, um, in the sight of the people of Israel and of the people of Egypt as well, all right? So, Here's a little bit of context for us. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 12, you're going to see the kind of attitude that Pharaoh has towards Yahweh. Uh, sorry, not verse 12, verse 1 to 2. Chapter 5, verse 1 to 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That I should obey him and let Israel go, I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. This has been his posture before God the whole way through, up until this point. He is standing before God and saying, "I don't know you, I don't recognise you." And what he's really saying is, "You have no authority over me." And really, if you think about it, you can kind of see how Pharaoh has got to this point, this this kind of level of arrogance, because he is unquestionably the most powerful man on earth at this point in history. Egypt is the premier um, dynasty at this point on the earth, and he is at the pinnacle of his powers. And so you can see you know, if another king came to him and wanted to take the Israelites away from him, he would be this way as well. And so facing up to Yahweh is no different. He doesn't know the Lord. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who, in, in effect, what he's saying is, who is greater than me that I should do what they want? And remember, we've seen again and again that none of this is surprising at all to God, like in chapter 3, verse 19. Remember, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. God says exactly what's going to happen. He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So God is the God who sees the end from the beginning. He knows exactly how this is going to play out from start to finish. He knows Pharaoh's heart better than Pharaoh does. And he knows that it's going to take a mighty hand. It's going to take mighty works of power in order to persuade Pharaoh to do what God wants him to do. So I feel like at this point we have been framing this conflict up as kind of a a competition between God and Pharaoh with the prize being the Israelites. But here it kind of shifts a little bit. And, and so it's not just about whether Pharaoh is Lord over Israel, but whether Yahweh is Lord over Pharaoh. That's the, that's the question. That's at the heart of it. Not just whether Pharaoh is Lord over the Israelites, but whether Yahweh is Lord over Pharaoh. Or is it true that what Pharaoh believes in his own mind is that he is God, he is divine, he is preeminent on the earth, and no one can tell him what to do. That's the question that's going to be settled through the next few chapters. And through the next few chapters, we're going to see plague after plague that God, um, that God sends the way of Egypt in order to demonstrate his credentials as the great I am, as the great preeminent God. And so he says in verse 24 of our chapter, chapter 7, he says, uh, sorry, no, not verse 24, verse 2 to 4 um, of chapter 7. He says, You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will land my, lay my hand on Egypt And with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. So he knows it's going to take these mighty acts of power to turn Pharaoh's heart, to turn his will, to set the people of Israel free. And we're going to see the first couple of of mighty acts here in this chapter. We're going to see a miracle and a plague. Okay, so first of all, we're going to see a miracle In verse 8 to 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So we're going to see this uh, and explore it a little bit more in the coming weeks, but looking at how the plagues... Uh, are not just kind of random things that uh, God sends the way of the Egyptians, but they're actually designed so that Yahweh can demonstrate his power over the gods of Egypt. For each of the plagues, there is a corresponding God that God is, uh, God Yahweh, the Lord, is saying, I am preeminent over this deity. I am sovereign over all of your little gods. That's what he's doing in the plagues. And so the, even in this miracle, I think we said a couple of weeks ago that for, for the Egyptians, the, the snake was a great um, symbol of power. And that Pharaoh himself saw himself as kind of the embodiment of this snake god. I forget its name. You can Google it. Uh, I, I mispronounced it anyway when I told you about it. But it's, it's, it's what he has on his crown, this, this, um, this kind of uh, little statue of a snake. And, and he sort of saw himself as the embodiment of this deity. And so I think that's why God has designed this miracle this way to show that he is able to, uh, with power, demonstrate his power over the serpents. And so this is Yahweh's first punch, right? This is the first punch he throws and it hits Pharaoh, the staff becomes a snake, and then it kind of looks like Pharaoh gets a little bit of a counterpunch in here, right, because his... Magicians, his his guys, uh, by their secret arts, it says they are able to replicate the miracle. It doesn't really go into how they did it. It's not really important how they did it, but they did. They were able to make their staffs turn into snakes as well. And there's kind of all these really fascinating stories about Egyptian magicians being able to do crazy and wonderful things. And uh, we don't know how they did it or, or by what power. Um, But it probably is enough to say that uh, we shouldn't always be so taken with every act of power that we see, every miracle that we see even. Uh, That's something the New Testament's quite um, careful about, is that we don't get swept up with every sign that we see. Satan himself appears as an angel of light. Satan himself is capable of doing great and miraculous things. And these guys probably have brought this about by the power of demonic, I don't know, demonic agents. But it is interesting, and the symbolism, we shouldn't get um, go past this without seeing the symbolism here because you notice right at the end there it says that, that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So it was a, a cool trick that they were able to do but the symbolism wouldn't have been lost on them. Their staffs just got swallowed by his staff. Their snakes just got eaten by his snake. And it's interesting because right around the world, um, I'm kind of I'm into snakes. I think you know about that, right? Um, herpetology. Um, and around the world, whether it's the king brown snake or mulga snake in Australia or the king cobra in Egypt or North Africa or the king snake in, in America or snakes around the world that... Um, habitually eat other snakes are called king snakes. And that's really what's going on here. God is demonstrating his kingship over Pharaoh. His snake ate your snake. So that's the first act of power that he demonstrates to show Pharaoh who's boss. But and we're going to have to get used to this response from him. Verse thirteen: Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. You can hear that over and over again. Pharaoh's heart was hardened rather than softened towards God's lord, lordship. So that's the first miracle. Then we get the first plague. All right, verse twenty and following. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and all the water was changed to blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its waters. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart became hard he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. So here God is going after the next big deity in Egypt, the Nile. The Nile to them was not just a big, powerful body of water, it was God, goddess. It was known as the mother of Egypt because they knew, like we do with our modern uh, geographical studies, that without the Nile you don't have Egypt. Egypt is a desert. The Nile deposits meters, six or seven meters apparently of uh, in-depth, of rich black soil from the delta down into Egypt. And it's the the source of all their prosperity, all of their crops, everything they have comes from the Nile. That's why Egypt's called the the child of the Nile, that, that she is the mother of Egypt. And so God goes after her. God goes after her to demonstrate that he is powerful over their goddesses, that he can take away their prosperity just like that. And so he turns the entire Nile to blood. And I've read some morons this past week who try and explain this through natural causes like "oh, the, the silt in the river suddenly turned red for some reason. It, it's nonsense, right? It, Moses can foresee morons in our day coming up with that stuff. So he even tells us that vessels that were holding water quite apart from the river were turned to blood as well. All right? So this is miraculous. This is judgment by God. He has just fully, comprehensively condemned Egypt by turning their water to blood. They now have nothing to drink. And quite apart from that, just if you can just imagine the greatest river in the world Turn to blood. Just imagine how quickly, in the middle of the desert, that turns off. Just the putrid smell that that would create. He says that the water smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. We used to have a couple of chest freezers on our back veranda, and um, you know, I I can't remember eating much other than meat. For most of my life growing up, that was kind of pretty much my 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 breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so, what we used to do um, was just buy whole carcasses from a friend. They'd be butchered on the farm just down the road, and we'd buy um, like half a cow and then whole lambs and just chuck them in the freezer. And um, one summer we went away for a few weeks and came home, and unbeknownst to us, the power had cut or whatever, and the whole both chest freezers full of meat had just slowly sweat it out over a few weeks. You guys with me? Yeah? I can't describe the smell to you, but blood that has been sitting and slowly coagulating and, and going thick in the sun over a few weeks stinks. It stinks. It's disgusting. I can almost like taste it right now just talking about it, and that was 20 years ago that that happened. So this is what... The, what's facing the Egyptians here and it's very pertinent that that you, you see his response to to all of this suffering that is coming on his people because of his um, because of his arrogance he turns and goes into his palace right like every great dictator he goes back to his snug little spot and lets everyone else deal with the issues they're there digging digging furiously along the edge of the Nile, trying to get water to drink. He is so hardened in his heart, not only towards God, but towards the, the, um, the plight of his own people. And again, just like in verse 13, his heart was hardened in response to this. In verse 22, again, his heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses or Aaron. Now, a question comes to mind when you're reading through this, especially if you've done what I recommend you do and just read through the whole, the whole book in one sitting, or at least this section, right, up to chapter 22, uh, chapter 18. If you read that all at once, you, you, you'd be doing yourself a favor. And you read this, and when you read it throughout, and especially when you, gr- you grind through plague after plague after plague, and you imagine the devastation, the question is, why is God... Going through all this rigmarole, why? Like, why the ten plagues? Why this war of attrition? Why not just skip? You know, why not just fast forward? Just get to the tenth one. God knows that's the one that's going to do the job. That's the one who's going to, that's going to turn Pharaoh's heart and turn his will. So, why not just skip ahead? And the answer is given to us very, very clearly by God Himself in chapter nine, just over the page. Verse 15 and 16, check this out. He says to Pharaoh, By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why God is going through this. That's what the plagues are about. They're not mainly about turning Pharaoh's will. He could have done that by skipping to the end. They're mainly an opportunity for him to show his power, his majesty. If you don't know this about God yet, then you you might not understand much of what the Bible says about God, but he is zealous for people to know how great he is. God is in the business of, of demonstrating how great he is. I mean, we kind of say this quite a lot and it can become a bit of a throwaway line that that God does everything for his glory. Have you ever considered that? Like everything he does is for his glory. If you've ever considered that deeply, then you might have come up with some objections or you might have, kind of question whether, is this really what God is into? Like this past week, I had a great privilege. I was sitting in my office and Jimmy was meeting with one of your kids and they were talking and, um, and Jimmy, Jimmy said to the kid, you know, everything God does, he does for his glory. And this kid was sharp enough to respond by saying, isn't that a bit arrogant? Like, if everything I do is to show how great I am, isn't that a little bit arrogant? Or maybe, like, isn't that a bit insecure? Normally, if you come across someone who is always trying to make themselves look good, they're probably quite insecure. They, they They need people to know how great they are. And that's... That's kind of a, an, object, an objection that's leveled at God. Remember, I told you a few weeks ago, C.S. Lewis, in his great commentary on the Psalms, he says, before he became a Christian, he used to read the Psalms and he would, say, he would see God throughout the Psalms saying, praise me, praise me, praise me. And he said, it sounded like an old woman fishing for compliments. Like, I want to be praised. I need to be praised. Like there's something deficient in him. What do you think about that? What would you say to someone who said, it sounds like God's just really full of himself if everything he does is for his glory? hmm Good. Any other thoughts? All right, we'll go with that one. Um, that's exactly right. If this was just a man, if this was me standing up the front saying, I do everything for my glory. Look how glorious I am. I'm doing everything I do is so that everyone will know for generations to come how great I am. Then that would be, well, that wouldn't just be arrogant, right? That would be a megalomaniac. That's, that's someone who becomes a Pharaoh. But God in doing this is simply revealing the truth about himself. He is glorious. He is worthy of our worship. He is. The kind of being who should be known for generations and generations. And on top of that, it's not just true about him, but it's good for us. right? The other part of that that puzzle is not, not only does God do everything for his glory, but he does it for our good as his people. And what is good for God's glory is good for our souls as well. But you need to know this. You need to be really clear about this, and this is why he makes it so emphatically clear that this is what's going on here. This is about God showing himself to be glorious. So you're going to see that for the next, I don't know how many chapters it takes us to get through these plagues. That's what God is trying to communicate to us. Let me just, just so you don't think, oh, that was just a couple of verses. There's a lot more than that, all right? So verse five of our chapter the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Verse 17 of our chapter. This is what the Lord says, by this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed to blood. Verse 10 of no, verse 14 of chapter 9. I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. And verse 1 and 2 of chapter 10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. That you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my many signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. He wants them to know his name. He wants them to know who he is. He is the Lord, Yahweh, the, the I am, the pre-existing, the preeminent. that's who he is. And he wants them to know this for generations. That's why this book is so big. That's why this exodus is so epic. So that in 3,000 years, people are standing up in Caroline Springs and talking about it. For generations to come, children and grandchildren will tell of my greatness. So Orthodox Jews to this day, every Passover, will tell the story of the exodus. Movies, Hollywood movies have been made on this very epic. Artwork has been commissioned, songs have been sung. And all of this was by design so that God's name would be known, that we would know that he is Yahweh. God's purpose is to use a man who thinks he is divine to demonstrate his true divinity. God's purpose is to use a man who thinks he is divine to demonstrate his true divinity. Now, here's the truth for us, right? Pharaoh can very quickly become like one of the Pharisees. like We just know he's a bad guy, and so we project all of our indignation onto him. But here's the truth. Everyone in this room... Is a little pharaoh. Like by nature, that's what we like. By nature, we are little pharaohs. We come out of the womb with our little snake hat on, right? That's that's how we are born. Don't don't believe the lie that that kids get born all innocent and then get turned bad, right? You didn't need to teach your kids how to be greedy and fight with each other, right? You do have to teach them how to be respectful and generous. That's how they come, all right? They're born into this world, totally depraved, and by nature, we are little pharaohs. And by that, I mean, we are by nature given to to claim for ourselves sovereignty and lordship. We are given to look at all of our stuff, including ourselves, and say, mine, mine. And so when we come into contact with Yahweh, when we come into contact with the truly divine, sovereign God, then we often come into conflict with him just as Pharaoh does. So in response, let's check out this slide. I've written this out for us. In response to God's claim of lordship over us, our money, our sexuality, our children, our plans, our very existence... Both unbelievers and believers are prone to respond like Pharaoh. Chapter 5 verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? We say that again. In response to God, to Yahweh, to the Lord, to his claim of lordship over us. Our money, our sexuality, our children, our plans. Just insert anything in there that you would say, mine. Our very existence, both unbelievers and believers, it's not just those guys, it's us, right? We are prone to respond like Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should obey him? So we claim these things for ourselves under our sovereignty, but the reality is that there isn't a square inch of the earth that is not God's. To which he does not rightfully say, Mine. And what we need to know as Christians, and the Israelites didn't know this, right? The Israelites didn't have this benefit, but we do. See, for them, the greatest act of God that they told to the generations and generations was the acts of God in the Exodus, the plagues and the Passover. They were the greatest acts of God for them, but we have a greater act. The greatest act of power that God has ever done on the earth is the death and resurrection of his own son. That is the greatest act of power that he's ever performed. And so his acts of power are designed for us to be able to see them and respond by falling on our knees and saying, Everything I have is yours. You are the Lord over all things. You have my allegiance. I am your servant and your son. But if we're not careful, the Bible tells us if we're not careful, then we can respond to God's claim of sovereignty by hardening our hearts, by doing what Pharaoh did. Some of us can fall into the trap of being threatened by God's absolute power, grabbing stuff for ourselves, whether it's driven by anxiety or greed or whatever, grabbing it for ourselves, saying mine, and so hardening our hearts against his loving and benevolent rule in our lives. So we have to be very careful The book of Hebrews is really big on this. We preached through this a couple of years ago. You might have been here. It's the book that's written to Jewish Christians, and it it kind of calls to mind all of their history as a people, including the history of the Exodus and the subsequent years where they were wandering in the wilderness and hardening their hearts towards God. And over and over again, the writer of the Hebrews says to the church, says to you guys, right, says to you, do not harden your hearts. He warns us against, her, against that, hardening our hearts. This is the deceitfulness of sin, that where we become comfortable with sin, over time it, it calcifies our hearts, it, it, it hardens it. And what God desires and what's best for us is a supple, soft heart towards God. So in Hebrews chapter 3, this is what he says to, to us, right? He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, Caroline Springs Anglican, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, so that none of you may become what Pharaoh became. So here's the truth, right? I get half an hour each week and my half an hour is up. I get half an hour each week to exhort you, exhort me from the scriptures. Do not harden your heart. Put away sin. Put to death sin. Give up what you have in service of the Lord Jesus. It's him who is God and king over all things. I get half an hour to do that. But what he is saying is that every day the church has the opportunity and, in fact, not just the opportunity, but the obligation. This is a commandment, right? Not a suggestion. He's saying, encourage one another daily. Do it. As long as it's called today. Is it called today? Yep. Yep. So if it's today, then encourage one another so that none of you may be hardened. I get my half an hour. You have every day an opportunity to encourage each other, spur one another on to love and good deeds. All the more as you see the day approaching. So here's one thing. uh, We'll talk more about this. So don't worry if you don't get it all right now. But one thing um, that we are really encouraging people in this church, anyone who would say, this is my church. You know, this is the church you come to regularly. This is your spiritual family. If that's you, then we're encouraging you to not just be in a small group, but to be in an even smaller group. And we're talking about three or four people. Three or four people that you can meet with to encourage each other. To confess sin to one another. In a minute, after we've sung a couple of songs, we're going to confess our sins corporately. That's one way of doing it. But another way, which is just as important, which also is commanded in Scripture, is that we confess our sins to one another. So you need a context in order to do that. You're probably not going to do it over soup, right? Like just gather a few people in over soup and talk about how you've been struggling with that thing again. right? That's probably not going to happen. You need to get a different context. And you need to get two or three If you're a woman, they're probably going to be women. If you're a man, probably going to be men, right? You can get around. I've, I've got my three. We get together and we can just confess and encourage. Most of these imperatives in the Bible don't make any sense if you don't have that. So, what's the encouragement for us tonight? The encouragement is to see God's great acts, yes, in the Exodus, but even more in the death and resurrection of Jesus and in response to God's mighty acts to see his glory and to delight in it. We do that by singing his praises. We do that by giving ourselves to him in service. We do it by avoiding sin, which hardens our hearts towards him. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time again where we get to open your word and exhort one another from it. And we pray that this would not be a wasted time or a wasted opportunity, but rather that you would be working in our hearts by faith, that your two-edged sword would be cutting right down to the bone, Lord, that you would be changing us by the power of your spirit through the power of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would please diminish the Pharaoh in us and that you would enlarge the Lord Jesus in us. Make us more like him. Father, please make us a church full of people who are helping one another make all of life all about Jesus. We pray in his good name. Amen.